This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Happens in a Small Town. So we were actually just talking about the fact that we need some music for this podcast. Yeah, some like creepy music or something. I don't know. Something that is like that house that you showed me in LA. Yes. Isn't the... that a cool oh house? Oh my gosh. It's got a red swimming pool. I'm like, it's like the perfect so place cool. to hold like a murder mystery gala or something. Yes. And I'm like, um, author, great <laughs> author house for sure. Oh, I yeah. Mean, you just need 15 million to plunk down on it. Yeah, no biggie. Wish I had that. Oh yeah, that's that's um. <laughs> well, I did hear that whoever won the most recent Powerball was in California, so oh. maybe they'll go for it. Maybe. I mean, hey, it wasn't me. I didn't go to California. Me either. Me either. <laughs> yeah. Darn. Yeah. Mm, I should ask Deb, my former boss. Her husband's out in California right now. Mm. Maybe he bought the ticket. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> that would be cool. It's like, how much do you love me? Not enough to give me any of it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Probably oh, well. not. But, you know, it, it, uh, it's oh, a dream. The good old Powerball dream. I mean, yes. doesn't almost everybody, except maybe the very wealthy, have some story, some thoughts mm-hmm. on what they would do if they won the Powerball? Oh, you and I have talked about that for Years. Years. Because it's, yeah. it's just a fun, playful, I mean, even if I it wasn't the Powerball itself, but it gives you those ideas to stretch, well, if I had Powerball money, I'd do this. What would I do with, you know, enough financial planning that I can retire at 57 if yes. I do that? So obviously not at the grand scale of like 400 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, um, you know, we've talked about like, you know, you would have a huge piece of land. Oh, yeah. Make a little, I don't know, compound just sounds so Ruby Ridge. But uh, yeah, yeah, be like, um, my massage therapist might have to have a home on the compound. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hairdresser, I don't know, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Maybe a Melissa. Maybe a Melissa. <laughs> and a Rick. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'd have to let him come too. Just yeah, kind of, because, you know, I am married to him. I know, silliness. Yeah. I like Rick. Dylan. He's a good guy. Hmm. Yeah, no. <laughs> Dylan, Dylan is a um, only one person pup. Yes, he I would mean, definitely have to remain on your side of the compound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a little vicious thing. He's so funny, though. I come here yeah. and I sit down to make sure he has a little time with me. And he'll be like playing all over my lap and growling-ish at me. And you're like, dude, what up? It's kind of yeah. like my Roxy was. Right. Yeah, he definitely has like a, I don't know. He's kind of like... um Snotty lo- cat. Well, it's part of the reason that we've always called him El Diablo, because he's like, "Are it, you Satan?" Yeah, it's just kind of <laughs> like, okay, you you act really sweet sometimes, and then you're like, just evil, mean little dog. Okay, yeah. 
Because one of our, did we have him sit here twice or just once during an episode? Uh, and one of them he just had this random freak out when I picked him up to put him on uh-huh. my lap because he was begging to come on my lap. And then it sounded like I was going to die. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We cut that out because we figured you guys might be a little freaked out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you want to hear my dog's really weird, vicious sounds. Uh, They're high pinched and snarly and you're like, yeah. I am going to die. He hmm. definitely thinks he's boss. I mean, it's just, he just thinks he owns everybody. Everything, everything can mm-hmm. tell us all off whenever he wants to. Ah, uh, animals. Aren't they fun? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always fun. Ugh. Yep. Well, today's episode, we're going back to Illinois. Yes. Viola, Illinois, actually, which is only 41 miles from our hometown of Kiwani. So is it viola or is it viola i always you know heard what? viola i heard viola but maybe in my old age haha i go with viola because i think that's what it should sound like kind of yeah. like lafayette okay. my mother well, as a kid my mom called it lafayette i remember she just lafayette. didn't yeah. care what it was supposed to be yeah it's always hard because it's like yeah i think well, there's I a cairo up. illinois too so oh, i'm sorry true. it's cairo but yeah. cairo why not yeah. So if I'm pronouncing it wrong, it's because I don't know any better. Well, I know exactly Kiwani what it is. Kiwani was Kiwani or mm-hmm. Kiwani or I mean, yeah. Like, wait a just... second. Don't you both live in the same town and you're pronouncing it differently? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Illinois. What can I say? So this is a um, Kathy episode. Yes. Uh, Kathy Vigor, and who is now Kathy Bailey. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Um, she suggested this episode. And so it's kind of, um, it's really a sad story. And it really kind of, I had a hard time with this one because it kind of hits. It oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's another, you know, very, very small town. Yeah, I don't believe it tried to call itself a city. I did a quick look up on Wikipedia, and they had almost nothing on it except for population, really. Yeah, and, and there's one like square mile, less than a thousand people. Mm-hmm. It's very, very small. It's yeah. due west of Kiwani on 17. Because mm-hmm. actually, there there is an ID murder comes to town episode on it, which actually was on yesterday. Yeah, randomly before I watched the 24 Hours of Daytona, I'm like, why do I know so much about this? Oh, duh! It's because we're doing an episode on it, dummy. <laughs> but there's a lot of things, and we were talking about this before too. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to read the different stories that are in print because and on TV, they cut out huge sections of information mm-hmm. that we're about to talk about and and then but then they're a serial show they have to come up with what they want to talk about right and other thing other things we read said almost nothing about other things that are in the show so mm-hmm. again this is why we try not to only single source things right and um so let's get started um the story is oh well not story, but murder, um, <laughs> Melissa White. Um, so she was born Melissa Johnson on July 25th, 1972 in Davenport, Iowa. The daughter of Larry B. Johnson and Helen Peary Johnson, Melissa was a homemaker and artist with much of her artwork being featured in local art galleries throughout the Quad City area. She enjoyed gardening, cooking, baking, and doing craft projects with her co- 
her children. She graduated from Sherrard High School sometime around 1991. After high school, she took some time off and backpacked across the U.S. How cool is that? I know. I actually was looking to see if I could find more about where she went when she backpacked, yeah. but I, I didn't find anything. I that couldn't doesn't mean either. We couldn't eventually find more. Yeah, but very cool. I, I love that she did that. It's just so, that's so like 70s slash yes. European. Yes. Uh, she attended Minnesota State University and received a degree in art. After graduating, she was ready to start a family, so she returned to Viola, where she could be close to her family and friends. Melissa and Pete knew each other in high school. Melissa was working at a local bar and living above the bar. Pete came into the bar frequently, and they reconnected. In 2005, Melissa gave birth to a son. Melissa and Pete got married shortly after his birth. A year later, they had a daughter. Sometime after that, their marriage started to fall apart. Pete had issues with drugs and drinking. Melissa's family tried to help him, but after six years of marriage, Melissa and Pete divorced. Now, this also was a little... I I had a... I couldn't find, like, a record of when they got married and if they actually got divorced. Because in some they things... They keep calling him his, her estranged husband yeah. in some things. And in the TV episode, they had a picture from mm-hmm. their wedding. So the wedding happened-ish. Right. When? I'm not right. 100% sure about the divorce, if it happened, if they were in the process. It just... And it sounded like in the process, because somewhere along the line, one of the confessions includes she was going to leave me for good. So okay. I don't know. It's, it's again, it's another one of those, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But basically, they were not, they were not doing well. Um, also, in June of 2008, um, Melissa's sister, Amanda, passed away from cancer. She was only 28 years old. And, I, and we really know sad. it's a little piece that it's like we didn't know really where to put that, except that we knew that her sister really affected her life a little bit, yeah. too. So we felt it was a little tidbit of information to share. So Pete's given name is William R. White Jr. Uh, no idea why he was called Pete. <laughs> well, you remember. Uh, oh, shoot. I think I talked about this before. We have the the friends that they have um oh shoot one of my mom's friends when i was growing up mm-hmm. they go by swede there is nothing about the name that says swede but that's their nickname yeah. and it went from father to son it's like one of those why that's not in their name anywhere and that would be the case with pete so yeah. um one article read and this kind of made me laugh bad stuff just doesn't happen in viola and I'm like, oh, well, that's exactly why we have a show, because nothing happens in, in a small, small town. town. <laughs> As we know, that is not so true. not the truth. <laughs> um, despite some issues with her partner, Melissa apparently, or Melissa appeared happy in her community and life. On the evening of October 21st, 2011, Melissa was found unconscious outside the back door of her home in this Mercer County village about 25 miles south of the Quad Cities. She had been savagely beaten, struck with multiple blows to the head. Her six-year-old son found her and ran next door to the neighbors for help. 
Melissa had gone out to bring in the plants. She was worried about frost. He thought she had fallen, but it was obvious to police this was no accident. And here we go again with the annoyances when you hear, when you see uh, certain stories told with some embellishments. I had to um, groan a little bit at the very beginning of that episode of Nothing Happens, or sorry, we're nothing that happens in a small town. This was uh, murder, murder comes, comes to town. To town yeah. They start by doing all this. It's it's Halloween and yes. blah blah blah. And there's a little girl in a dress walking along, <laughs> and she slaps her hand on the door with blood all over. It. It's like, yeah, okay, that was a little, little much, y'all. Yeah, it was the son that went over. He was older. Yeah. Um, Melissa was taken to Mercer County Hospital and was airlifted to OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria, where she was pronounced dead the next day. The result of blunt force trauma to the head due to a violent assault. She had suffered multiple skull fractures. Several suspects were questioned, including her ex Ex or estranged husband. Pete claimed to be home alone all night, and cell phone records indicated he was telling the truth. According to Murder Comes to Town, they also questioned a couple of neighbors, but there wasn't a clear standout for her murder. The first potential suspect was the neighbor next door, uh, Sean Jackson. He was, I'm sorry, he approached the police as they were investigating that night. Melissa had been babysitting his child while his wife was out of town. When questioned that evening, he was freshly showered and in clean clothes but he worked in an auto body shop. He gave police his mechanic overalls and complied. ah, Complied. I don't know why I read that as compiled in my head, but I'm like, no, that's not right. I did spell it right. I promise. No. Just brain. They suck. Brain words. Yes. (laughs) With all, um, so he complied with all other questionings. Melissa's mom had been there for part of the time and he was quickly cleared. While Melissa had been having trouble with her ex-estranged husband, her family did not necessarily believe he would have killed her. Her mother's first inclination when she heard that her daughter was injured, that she tripped and fallen. She is quoted saying, Melissa was my accident-prone child. My thoughts were, oh, Melissa, what have you done now? Blood splatter found on the back wall of the home suggests a brutal attack. Cast-off blood was found at a level consistent with Melissa being on her hands and knees when she was struck in the head. There was only there was one single bloody fingerprint at the scene. It turned out to be Pamela Langley's, the neighbor who the children went to, the woman who found Melissa and attempted to offer her first aid. When questioned the next day, Melissa's mother, Helen, told police that her husband, Pete, had become unhinged and he only lived about 10 miles away. When initially questioning Pete, he said he always kept his cell phone on him in case he got a call about the kids and watched Law and Order all night. The police who questioned him knew him well for he'd been, they'd been dealing with his repeated offenses over the years. He also told police they shouldn't worry about Sean. They should look into the guy who lived across the street, Dan Smith, as he was typically very loud and annoying to his neighbors. But the night she was assaulted, he was not at home, which was highly unusual. He was out with his friends visiting haunted houses. 
So he was quickly cleared because they yeah. were able to get a hold of people. But they still kept him and the neighbor in the yeah on the bo- murder board, I guess you would say. Pete um, had been under court order to stay away from his wife, who had filed for an emergency order of protection on July 14, 2011. On July 28th, she amended her petition to include additional details. Melissa described a life of constant harassment by Pete, who had continually a continual substance abuse problems. In late June 2011, respondent threatened to kill me, she wrote, since being served with the emergency order of protection on July 15th in the above restaurant referenced case respondent has harassed via text phone call and voicemail myself my mother my sister and two friends of mine on july 15 2011 respondent called me and left a voicemail in which he called me a bitch he suggested he would burn down my house melissa described being locked out of her house she believed by her ex-husband after he was given possession of it in the emergency order of protection. Um, I was forced at the suggestion of the police to break into the residence. When I got into the house, I saw that a garden that I have worked on with my children had been smashed. There were also beer cans scattered around the house. The harassment continued. On July 18th, her ex-husband stood in the driveway of her neighbor's house and called her names while she was outside. On July 20th, the electricity to her home was turned off. Melissa said she was told by the power company that Pete had called them and turned it off. That one, I'm like... You turned off the power on your estranged wife and your kids. kids. Yeah, Your kids. You're doing this to your kids. That one bugged me. (laughs) I mean, it all bugged me, but that one bugged me. In the following days, Pete continued to call, text, and leave voice messages for Melissa, her mother, and some of her friends. I mean, this guy, he was definitely, I mean, to say that he was getting unhinged, because I was trying to remember exactly what her mom said during that episode. Now, granted, I don't know how many years after the fact it was that they Mm -hmm. did this episode, because I didn't pay attention to when it was filmed, but you're just like... Good gracious. Her mom's like, oh, well, maybe you should check in with her her estranged husband when they asked if anybody would want to kill her. And you're like, yeah, you think? I mean, the orders yeah. of protection. And that was a piece that wasn't in Murder Comes to Town. Right. And that they one, didn't talk about that at all. I surprised that they didn't have anything about that. I mean, zero. No, no reference, reference to it at all. Nope. Not one reference to the fact that she had orders of protection against him. Multiple ones. Multiple. Yes. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And actually, I, I'm going to talk about orders of protection in the next break. But the first one, again, we definitely aren't talking fun facts here this episode. Sorry. So the OSF stands for the Order of St. Francis. So that's that uh, the hospital that she went to and was actually pronounced um, dead at. So it's a not-for-profit Catholic healthcare organization that operates a medical group, hospital system, and other healthcare facilities in Illinois and Michigan. Headquartered in Peoria, Illinois, the OSF Healthcare is owned and operated by the Sisters of the Third Order of St. Francis, hence the OSF. OSF Healthcare employs nearly 20,000 
4,000 mission partners in more than 105 locations, including 15 hospitals, with 2,089 licensed acute care beds, 10 acute care for critical access, and 32 urgent care locations, and two colleges of nursing throughout Illinois and Michigan. That's a pretty significant. It is. The healthcare uh, physician network employs 1,700 primary care, specialty, and advanced practice providers. The OSF Healthcare through OSF Home Care Services operates eight home health agencies, eight hospice agencies, including an inpatient hospice home, home infusion pharmacy, and home medical equipment. It also owns Point Court Incorporated, composed of healthcare-related businesses, OSF Healthcare Foundation, the philanthropic arm of the organization, and OSF Ventures, which provides investment capital for promising healthcare innovation startups. The Ministry Services Office in Peoria provides corporate management services as well as direction, consultation, and assistance to the administration of healthcare facilities. Yeah, this is a pretty powerhouse organization. (laughs) Yeah. So it was founded, the Sisters of the Third Order of St. Francis were founded in Peoria on July 16th, 1877 by Mother M. Francis Crass, OSF, and Bishop John Lancaster Spaulding. Hmm. Yeah. Just thought a little history would be interesting. Yeah. It was, uh, the property was obtained in 1877 for St. Francis Hospital, which is the present-day site of OSF St. Francis Medical Center. On January 2nd, 1880, the Sisters of the Third Order of St. Francis Non-For-Profit Corporation was incorporated. So it's been a long-running thing, not-for-profit. It's pretty big. I think um, the St. Joseph's Hospital in Bloomington, Illinois, that was established uh, later that same year in 1880, moving in 1968 to its present site as OSF St. Joseph Medical Center, I think think that's where one of my sister's kids was born but i can't remember yeah i i think i've been mm. to us uh, uh, yeah i, I remember yeah. passing it and stuff i mean this i mean bloomington's not that close but it's not that far away either i know i've been to the i think the I've one in peoria one in peoria i'm pretty sure i, I mean, mean really if you get really injured in yeah Kiwani, they would send you to peoria other cities grandpa was in in Peoria, one of the hospital, I I think it had to have been that one. Yeah, I think the one in Peoria, I think Michaela was born there, but I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Things, I'm like, ever, people in the area know of these places. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> um, so in 1884, five sisters were sent to Escanaba, or however you say that, Michigan, to begin working at Delta County Hospital. In 1915, the sisters purchased that hospital hospital and renamed it OSF St. Francis. By then, the sisters were already opening St. Anthony Hospital, which was established in Rockford, Illinois in 1899. The hospital in Rockford moved in 1963 to a new facility as present-day OSF St. Anthony Medical Center. Um, Speaking about these medical centers, it's just one of those things I, I, I feel I have to mention there are some controversial controversial because i can use words (laughs) issues with them faith-linked controversies include family planning child protection especially child marriage female genital mutilation and immunization issues stigma and harm reduction violence against women 
sexual and reproductive health, and HIV, gender, end-of-life issues, and faith activities, including prayer. Obviously, some of these issues are not so much prevalent here in the United States. Right. Like the whole uh, child marriage and genital mutilation thing. Right. But, uh, and immunization practices. And I know there have been a couple of uh, things over the years about um, women getting... Uh, fixed if you will can't come Mm -hmm. up with words um but yeah so i looked at pubmed.gov had released a series of documents starting in 2015 to address the issues um the abstract for these uh series of documents uh says the differences in faith religious faith-based viewpoints or controversies on the sanctity of human life acceptable behavior healthcare technologies and healthcare services tribute, contribute to the widespread variations in healthcare worldwide. Faith-linked controversies include family pr- planning, child protection, um, the whole thing about child marriage, you know, mutilation and immunization, stigma and harm reduction, violence against women, sexual and reproductive health, and HIV, gender, end-of-life issues, and faith activities, including prayer. Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, and traditional beliefs have similarities and differences in their viewpoints. Improved understanding by healthcare providers of the heterogeneity of viewpoints, both within and between faiths, and their effect on healthcare is important for clinical medicine, public health programs, and healthcare policy. Increased appreciation in faith leaders of the effect of their teachings on health is also crucial. Yeah, so there's like <laughs> tons of things that we could probably say here. Oh yeah, but I think I'm gonna hold off. <laughs> yeah, it it just goes along those lines of um, if you aren't looking at just you will do no harm, and you start putting your own religious beliefs into the care of another human being, you can cause people harm. Yeah, for sure. So, well, hopefully. Um, Everybody is cared for equally. And here I go. Of course, I go to talk about a hospital and I have to bring out what might be bad about them. (laughs) All right. So back to Melissa White. And on July 28th, um, after a contested hearing, uh, this is, sorry, back to 2011, uh, after a contested hearing in Mercer County Circuit Court, Judge Gregory Chikris ordered a two-year order of protection against William Pete White with Melissa White and their two children named as protected parties. On October 18th, Pete pled guilty to felony driving on a revoked license, felony possession of a controlled substance, and violating an order of protection. I can speak, I swear. I know, I do fine until I'm trying to like look something at something that I actually wrote for myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going, why am I tongue tied? I wrote these words. I know. Uh, Yeah. Who knows? It happens. Anyhow. Back to the brains. Yes. On January 24th, 2012, he was sentenced to four years in prison on the driving without a license charge. It was the sixth trip for him to the Illinois Corrections Department of Corrections. Melissa's husband had around 60 felony and misdemeanor convictions. I'm going to repeat that. 
60 felony and misdemeanor convictions. This is why when we were talking earlier about the fact that the police knew who he was. Well, yeah. it wasn't just because it was a town of under a thousand people. It they was because him. he's been in trouble a lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot. Um, he was driving a riding mo- lawnmower through town. He had uh, six driving under the influence convictions and 11 driving on a revoked license convictions amongst 57 prior convictions for various criminal felony and misdemeanor charges when i was looking and i actually found a bunch of records for him so that was kind of interesting and it was like traffic 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 ordinance violation dui eviction and then several criminal felonies yeah so but they were relatively non-violent crimes true even though you can definitely say well if you're driving under the influence you could have killed somebody but he hadn't as of that point. Right. Um, Not only did he have 60 felony and misdemeanor convictions, but Melissa had an order of protection against him, and that makes him, in my mind, suspect number one. Mine too. Four days after her death, police and volunteers search the area. They find a crowbar in a field nearby. It was identified as the murder weapon after matching the hair and blood on it to Melissa. There wasn't any forensic evidence found that would tie it to a suspect. No fingerprints or other physical evidence to tie it to the scene. And if you remember, there was only one fingerprint found at the scene and it belonged to the neighbor the son had gone to help, gone to for help upon finding Melissa. There's a news clip of Pete denying any involvement, crying on camera. To think I would do this and take her away from her kids, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh-huh. I saw that clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crocodile tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police looked into her social media connections. None of them panned out. Yeah, there was two guys. One was an artist in New York. The other was in, I think it was Seattle. Yeah. And he was somebody who graduated high school. Right. And, and neither never... of them were even in town or right. anywhere nearby. So they were quickly cleared. Yep. November 23rd, 2011, the Sheriff's Department got a policy polygrapher to interview three individuals and i'm not gonna talk about how much i don't believe with polygraphs but yeah yeah. anyhow uh neighbors sean jackson who is cooperative and dan smith who is not thrilled but he went um he kind of got defensive and annoyed but passed the test both of them passed and estranged husband pete white does not consent Yep, he got defensive, yelled on the phone, and never went in. Figures. Um, The police knew he put, this is, we're talking about Pete again, he took pain meds for a knee injury, and that it wasn't uncommon for him to go through a case of beer in a day. It's at this time he is the primary suspect, but they have no physical evidence to tie him to the murder. October in 2012, Pete was arrested for driving a lawn tractor while having a suspended license and driving under the influence. He was sentenced to four years. I think I kind of mentioned that before, but yeah, it was just one of those trying to tie it back in again. Yep. And in 2012, I found a order of protection um, for Mar- 
Mallory Hertzberg, and I think she might have been one of Melissa's friends. Right, because there was also earlier things where we talked about. Um, so yeah, she got the protection. Her, her mom, mom, sister, and a couple friends. some friends. So I'm pretty sure that's one of her friends. Um, so during the time that he is spending his four years in prison, he is also petitioning for custody of the children when he gets out. Yeah. Well, he wanted to have them when he was released. Right. Yes. Uh, so in 2013, Helen Johnson, who's Melissa's mother, and Jennifer Johnson, who is Melissa's sister, received an order of protection against Pete. And I'm thinking they're just preparing for his release. Mm-hmm. Three years into his sentence, Pete had a brother in jail. So police started to monitor them both. There was a confrontation between people in videos about 10 inmates were interviewed. They heard he was having issues sleeping and gaining weight and getting agitated. Inmates told police that Pete told them or they overheard him say that he had killed her. While in jail, he allegedly confessed to another inmate. Pete was also accused of threatening a government official after he reported, reportedly tell, told a guard that he would harm Mercer Gosh, I really can't speak today. <laughs> Mercer County, yes. Mercer County public defender Dan Dalton for this. Uh, Pete was to face trial, but an interview with other inmates during preparation in 2014 resulted in the revelation of his confession. Yeah, so I think these two stories really do meld into each other. They were monitoring for a bunch of different reasons, mm-hmm. and they didn't talk, again, this is where the murder comes to town, doesn't mention anything about the fact that he was right um, threatening a yeah. Public defender. Yeah, so you know, just yeah. stuff. Um, October 15th, 2014, Pete White is formally charged with murder. Police started to press Pete. Pete wrote letters to Bill Glancy, a detective who he had a good relationship with Pete. Pete negotiated to get 25 years for the murder of Melissa. The police checked with the family to see if they were okay with it. They said if he confessed and they knew what happened to Melissa, they were okay with it. He claims he had gone to the house to break into the garage. There was an old stereo of his dad's. He claimed it was not intentional. His confession does not match what happened, but with murder, that sometimes happens. The murderer will try to minimize their involvement, trying to rationalize that they really didn't mean to do it and that it was a mistake. Given his actions, it's nearly impossible to fathom a mistake. He hit her eight times with a crowbar. Eight. (laughs) Sorry. That's not just a, oops, I hit her. Mm -mm. Um, If you've ever swung a crowbar, that's not just something you do eight times without meaning to. (laughs) No one carries a crowbar to steal a radio worth $15. Right. Um, So there was a jailhouse interview with Pete. And um, it says he was under the influence of a case of beer and pain pills the day he went to beat his estranged wife to death with a crowbar. I had a crowbar to break into the garage. That's when it just went wrong. He said to a jailhouse interview at the jail the day he pled the day after he pled guilty to first degree murder white says he had ignored an order of protection filed by melissa white and trespassed on the property to get some property out of the garage um yeah he says he swung the crowbar once to ward off the family dog and mistakenly hit her um and then what just again and again (laughs) yeah 
I swung and I was swinging and God knows I don't remember swinging. He said, I loved Melissa with all my heart. It was not intentional. Blah, blah. Sorry. I really, this guy. I have a hard time mm -mm. with this guy. I I saw a number of his interviews and you're just like, yeah. I I just didn't see the remorse, but yeah. Uh, Well, White said he remembers taking off and throwing his bloody clothes in ditches just outside of town. Yeah, one of the prosecutors said that he basically got in the car and started stripping, so he got home completely nude. (laughs) Like, "Hmm, yeah, I did nothing wrong. Uh He said he decided to confess and plead guilty to the crime after three years of denial because of police pressure, a guilty conscience, and repeated nightmares. I was just tired, mentally strung out, thinking about this. My kids coming to me in my sleep. Melissa coming to me in my sleep, screaming, I love you, why? White said. Why couldn't I stop drinking for my wife and kids? I was hooked on the pills, too, by then. Somebody like me, if you're lonely in the head, lonely in your heart, you'll stop at nothing to keep from losing everything you've got. I just didn't want to lose her and killing her made you i've never understood this i've heard this on something similar this refrain from multiple murderers i would never do anything i just wanted her to stay it's like so you killed killed her her? Uh, (laughs) doing drugs not coming home for nights spending our money she always forgave me i put her through so much from the day we met yeah, you did. But I'm not a monster. Uh, I disagree. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> not Sorry. convinced, dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Partly because I found a different confession. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think this happened in conjunction with his questioning about threatening the Mercer County public defender, Dan Dalton. In a videotaped admission, he said that he had driven to his wife's house on that fateful day in 2011 and hit her in the face and head upon learning that she was going to leave him for good. Pete also explained that he was wearing gloves, which he disposed with the rest of his clothes and shoes. So that one, I believe a little more. That one, I believe a little more. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Because that one just, it fits. Mm -hmm. It fits the evidence. Because she actually, she had at least one of the gashes was like right around her eyebrow. Mm -hmm. So that he mentioned her face there. Yeah. That's another reason why that one really talks to me. Right. As per his plea agreement, Pete is not eligible for probation and will be under supervision for three years following his release. Therefore, today he's incarcerated at the Dixon Correctional Center in Illinois, according to public records, although his projected parole date is in early 2039. His projected release date is January 17th, 2042. I guess they just kind of already have like a parole date baked in even mm-hmm. though he's not eligible for it right uh-uh. uh looking back at his interview p claims he was just over there to get an old stereo system from the garage but he left his phone at home which screams premeditation to me uh-huh even in 2014 the average person didn't leave their phone at home and by then the average person knew they could be tracked by their phones I don't doubt that drug and alcohol did not help the situation, but with the order of protection and some of the stuff he was doing to her, he was getting increasingly violent towards her. I also believe he could have gotten way more time for her murder if he had gone to trial. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. 
he, Pete says the right things in the clip that he shouldn't have done it, that he confessed for his kids and Melissa's family, that he wouldn't blame his kids if they don't talk to him ever again. But there wasn't the emotion behind it. Right, like it just said. was very matter of fact. It was not. Unlike that first one where he said he would never do that, where right. there were crocodile tears, that one. Yeah, he yeah. was just like a stone. And I'm, I'm presuming his lawyer prepped him. For that clip. Yeah. Um, after years of denying his hand to Melissa's murder, Pete apologized to her family and loved ones at his sentencing. I am truly sorry, he said. Not only did I take her life, I took out your your guys' lives. I stacked the deck against my kids. I'll live for the rest of my life wishing it was me. I shouldn't have been a coward. I should have owned up to it then. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a prepared statement, too. Sorry. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah. He just, I, I I, think, well, I have lots of thoughts on this one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's, and that goes into that next uh, thing that I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. We are definitely not fun facts this time. Sorry. Or not sorry, I guess. <laughs> Orders of protection. I decided to look at things like, I don't know, how often are they approved? What other stats can I find? How common are they? How long do they last? Um, I did find a handful of different places to look for things about this, but it's it's actually kind of uh, frightening is not the right, right word. It's it's sad to me that we don't have a lot of statistics on this and that yeah. they're not captured well. Um, despite the powerful legal effects of the restraining orders, good U.S. national statistics on restraining orders have not been publicly available. The data sets below document U.S. restraining order statistics from public sources that make national estimates, estimates of restraining orders issued and orders in effect through both civil and criminal procedures. In the U.S. across the year 2008, courts issued an estimated 1.7 million domestic violence restraining orders. On any given day in 2008, an estimated 1.2 million domestic violence restraining orders were active. And this is just what we can find in public records. Terminology for restraining orders varies across jurisdictions, part of why it's so hard to figure out this information. Mm -hmm. Restraining orders are also commonly called orders of protection, protective orders, and protection from abuse orders. These orders typically arise from allegations of domestic violence or harassment. A restraining order restrains the subject's part, subject party's communication and association with particular persons. A restraining order can deprive a person of communication with their children and have the right to live in their own home. While the term order of protection has become much more common than the term of restraining order, the former term is paraphrasic. Ooh, I love that they're getting the big words here. <laughs> restraining order more directly describes the legal act in the relevant order. So they, re- and this is, um, you have to be smart enough about what to ask for and to provide enough evidence as well. The number one reason, there's there were a lot of words in this article. Um, one of the main reasons one isn't allowed is because you haven't given enough evidence. Hmm. And um, I've seen a number of cases through the years where there wasn't enough t- evidence to provide a restraining order until basically the person was either violently attacked and somehow lived through it or passed. So it's really, hmm. it's an imperfect science. 
So restraining orders issue from both civil and criminal proceedings. Both types have proceedings generate initial restraining orders. So the initial restraining orders typically have durations from one to 15 days. You'll remember that she had the first one on the 15th of July and then updated it around the 28th, I think Mm -hmm. it was. Um, Initial restraining orders typically have that duration I said. Initial restraining orders often lead to final restraining orders. Um, the final restraining order is given pre- is a given proceeding that has a duration of a year or longer. So even while they call them final or sometimes permanent orders, they typically don't actually last permanently. In a given proceeding, initial orders can be renewed before arriving at a judgment on a final order just to keep them going until you get all the paperwork mm-hmm. in, in place. Some national estimates of restraining orders have been published based on data from the National Restraining Order Registry, but these estimates are not well documented. The FBI established a protection order file at its National Crime Information Center in May of 1997. As of 2002, a bulletin from the U.S. Office for Victims of Crime stated, in fall 1998, the National Registry contained only 97,136 entries. And you'll remember we said before, 1.7 mm-hmm. million, whatever, which is estimated to be less than 5% of the 2 million orders believed to qualify for entry. Hmm. Well, what the heck do they mean by that? Yeah. So it didn't actually provide any documentation or source for the 2 million orders believed to qualify for empty entry. And there's some controversy over whether this number is overinflated or not high enough. There are also eight states that didn't participate in the study, Other states provide only partial data county by county with multiple counties not responding. An example was Texas purportedly only provided data from roughly one quarter of its counties. Hmm. So with incomplete data, you get incomplete statistics. Yeah. So seriously disturbing to me is that statistics on restraining orders arising from criminal proceedings proceedings for domestic violence are of worse quality than statistics on restraining orders rising from civil proceedings. Hmm. Statistics on criminal domestic violence restraining orders are generally available only in state-specific court statistical publications, which may not be shared publicly. So you're like, what? So next question, of course, is what happens if an order is violated? Hmm. So... Consequences for violation of protection orders range from civil contempt penalties to misdemeanor for or felony criminal charges. Punishments range from fines to imprisonment. In selected jurisdictions, police have, have been given the authority to enhance the legal response to protection orders and are permitted to make warrantless arrests for misdemeanor offenses, which I think is a very good forward mm-hmm. um, order here. As of 2004, 20 states in the District of Columbia had in- instituted that mandatory arrest for violations. Hmm. That's only 20. Yeah. There's 50 states, y'all. Yeah. Time is a factor um, related to protection order violation. Much of the violation activity occurs within the first three months after issuance of the order. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Order in July, August, September, October. Yeah. Three months. Much of the violation activity occurs within three months, like we just said. Um, one of the people doing research noted a quadrupling of psychological abuse during the period of temporary protection order. Hmm. Calls, screaming at her from the neighbor's yard. Mm-hmm. 
Um, just the time shortly after an index incident, as they call it, is when most temporary protection orders are issued. Several victim characteristics, while not consistent across all studies, have been associated with renewed abuse after placement of an initial protection order. These include socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, presence of biological children mm -hmm. with the abuser, race, ethnicity, and prior drug use by the victim. But I think the prior drug use in this case is by the abuser. Yeah. Mears and Carlson, another group of people doing research, uh, found that the socioeconomic status of the victim is related to increased risk of renewed abuse after a protection order has been placed. Women of very low versus low medium socioeconomic status experience a significantly lesser decline in reported violence after the restraining order. So like they, it only reduces um, like by 30% hmm. to 50%. Yeah, the numbers there are backwards. Yeah. Um, suggesting that they are overall higher risk of re-victimization. Hmm. And this is where I'm like, okay, small town of Viola or Riola or however you want to say it. <laughs> um, the median income there, I, that was like one of the few statistics I could find on that place is something in the 40 or less thousand a year, which is below the poverty line. Right. And um, we didn't really talk. There wasn't a lot in a lot of articles, just a small mention of it in the uh, Murder Comes to Town, that she didn't really have stable work. Right. Because... He was a handyman. That was his profession. And she was a mom of two small children. They were six right. and four. And while she had like art in some galleries, I don't think she made money off of A lot of money of off of it, right. Um, it's it hard. said she was like babysitting yep. and um, donating blood and doing different things to... And she always did what she needed to to make sure that the bills were paid. Yeah. And just talking about the whole order of protection thing... In my first divorce, I actually have a permanent order of protection written into the divorce. Yep. So Hey, you do what you have to. And see, yeah. that's another thing. Would they have that statistic added to their research when it's in a court document? Yeah. And I don't know. I have no idea. It depends. Idea. Yeah. And that's, that's basically, there were... It was a really long thing I was reading, and what I the a recurring theme I saw was trying to estimate how the information they had could be statistically uh, drawn across the rest of the population. Because while they had um, decent sample sizes, since the sample sizes are across the United States in so many different socioeconomic statuses, and you know, given okay, maybe they got a quarter of the um, counties in texas what were, were they missing the biggest ones that had the most population i don't know yeah there there was just uh having incomplete data data at that level not being able to pull from court statistics or something not to mention when you're talking about orders of protection the verbiage that's used in legal ease doesn't necessarily use the words domestic violence in them mm -hmm. right so trying to decipher which ones are true domestic violence of a partner mm -hmm. versus ones without some are delineated well but again since we all 50 states and territories in dc get to decide how they run that piece right so well uh now we're going to talk a little bit about what people said about melissa 
as true to us. We, we like, especially Missy. Missy yeah. started this. I know. I really like to talk about the victims as much as I can, just because. We have lots of data about the offenders. Yes. You can search on them. Not as much about the victims. Right. So I remember I would watch usually around the schools when kids were getting dropped off and picked up, said Viola Police Chief Tom Mulder, and I'd see Melissa taking the kids in doing the Laverne and Shirley walk. I call it stepping, cross-stepping with her kids, playing with her kids. She wouldn't hurt a butter, butterfly. I thought that was so sweet. So sweet. I'm like, that's, that's a fun mom. Uh, she was a very sweet person. She would always talk to you. Then again, she was always apologetic when she took you away from what you were doing. And this is where I went, aww, <laughs> sounds like you, Melissa. Aww. Always, um, you know. Yeah. You're getting better at it. I am. You used to apologize all the time. I know. For just about everything. And I it's did. so sweet and endearing, but also you're like, gosh darn it, you don't need to apologize for yourself. <laughs> She was just a good person. The only way I can explain Melissa, she was a very, very free spirit, Ms. Brewer said. She was very artistic, very caring. She loved art. She found art in everything. Melissa had the patience of a saint. Her children were her life. She tried to protect them. Her mother said that she was her love child. She was born in 1972, and she embraced everything you would think of when it came to the spirit of the 70s and 60s. People were just drawn to her because of her openness, fun, carefree. Injured bunny, injured frog, anything that was hurt or broken, she would try to fix to make it better. She sounded... Like a very nice person. Yeah. Just somebody you'd be friends with. And, right. and yeah. I mean, thankfully, she was living somewhere that was inexpensive to live in on a starving artist's not so much salary. Yeah. That's, I mean, I have my favorite artist in Ellicott City, of course, Wiley Perky. Yes. And you don't get to that point right off the bat. Art, like you said, you didn't, we didn't really think she sold a lot. Mm-hmm. She was, um, they'd mentioned that her art was on her walls in her uh, house as well as the neat art projects she did with her kids. Yeah. And her war- art would be described as modern art. Well, I haven't actually seen anything that she did. And just, I mean, I think I remember them saying something about like uh, colors. She was really mm-hmm. into color, yeah. which I love color. So, yeah. And I, I can definitely relate with having, you know, my, my books. I'm me and jewelry. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, I've, I have not made it as an author, that's for sure. <laughs> but who's to say you won't? I mean, that was yeah. one of the things. Oh, yeah, I'm um, definitely trying. It's one of those, I love to write. I love, you know, it's, it's my passion. I just unfortunately have a day job. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you have to pay the bills yes. and what have you. What was, yes. what's the name of the author? I'm, I'm blanking on her right now. The Scarpetta novel. Oh, yeah. Uh, Patricia Cornwall. Patricia Cornwall. She's one of my favorites. Yeah. And I'm yeah, sorry. I can picture your face. That's how I am. <laughs> the name? But anyhow, she, I had shared something with you the other day about, you know, to be a, what is it like to be an art, um, uh, a writer, you have to just keep on writing because yeah. you will fail many, many, many times oh, until yeah. you're found. And that, that's, you know, a lot of authors it, it have the same story. You know, you, you keep trying, you keep trying, and you get tons of rejections, and you 
you can't take those to heart. You've got to just keep trying and eventually maybe you get lucky and catch that big break or maybe you just maybe you earn enough that you can be comfortable maybe Mm -hmm. you don't but you still have that it's it's an art it's a drive oh yeah i mean the only reason i know wiley is because i had items in an art gallery myself Um, right i make chainmail jewelry which is gorgeous (laughs) pretty much drawing that down i do still make stuff but i had to come to a decision that wasn't easy to make uh either hold on to a lot of stock because you end up having just tons of materials that could become different things Mm -hmm. and trying to make that decision between what do you create in in and make ready for a show what do you hold off on until you've sold a couple things you can make the next thing because you can make multiple things with the same raw materials Mm -hmm. and what i do those major shows for like five years or so yeah and i mean i made enough to keep doing them and maybe if i didn't have you know a full-time job that really in the last couple years has taken over my life maybe i could do that more yeah Yeah. and i I still sell through my uh lapidary guild so Mm -hmm. that's fun yeah and your stuff is gorgeous. Thank I love you. the dragon scale. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's the so most pretty. labor and material intensive piece, of course. And I have a bracelet, one of the dragon scale bracelets, and I love wearing it and petting it. And <laughs> anyhow. And when we do go to Renfest, which hopefully oh, yes. we will get to this oh, next yeah, year. I really hope so. Yeah. I miss your, Renfest. Your Renfest outfit looks really good with my multicolored it dragon does. scale. Some no, course some, you get to borrow it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love it. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, my so, sister calls it my Cleopatra necklace. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. I still remember there was a lady who bought one, and her reaction was just so cute. She oh, yeah. put it on, and you can't see me doing this, but she's basically, like, fanning herself. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> she glowed. Yeah. She yeah. was so happy, and I remember being so happy for her. Not just because she bought my most expensive thing I ever made, but because... <laughs> She just looked so happy, and she's like, she I am doing this for me. Yeah, she was really cute. Anyhow, um, so Melissa's survivors include her children, William and Bertie, her mother, Helen Johnson, uh, her father, Larry B. Johnson, brothers and sisters, Bob Johnson, Indi- who lives, lives in, in Indiana. Indiana, Stephen Johnson, also in Indiana, Tammy Thompson, also in Indiana. A lot of family in Indiana. Hey, they got out of Illinois, but they didn't go that far. Yeah. (laughs) Jennifer Johnson, Rock Island. uh, Michelle Ramirez, Silvis, Amber Lamp in Devonport. Megan Bennett in Buffalo. Maternal grandmother, Darlene Thomas in Devonport. Also surviving are Marilyn Lamp in Walcott and Bing Lamp in Walcott and several aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, and cousins. Melissa was preceded in death by her grandparents and her sister, Amanda, as we had talked about earlier. And a stepmom. And her stepmother, Rhonda Johnson. So this one was sad. I really, the whole thing, I, I just had a hard time with... Well, the domestic violence yep. piece and it hits home for me and yeah it's really hard to fathom if you don't 
if you've never been struck with that situation, my own mom and dad, there was a domestic violence situation with that. Yeah. Small towns. I mean, they happen everywhere. They do. But they do. Um, if you're that whole discussion about socioeconomic status, if you are poorer, if you will, mm-hmm. and if you feel as a woman in the situation or, you know, the partner that isn't the moneymaker, what have you, that you rely on that the abuser, mm-hmm. it is incredibly hard to leave yeah. for lots of reasons, not just the, where will I go? Where is my, where am I going to get money? Am I safe? Mm-hmm. Some people think they're safer if they stay. And when you've got things like this within that first three months is when they are the most volatile, right? the abuser. So it can be hard to leave. And with him, I mean, <laughs> you, you just see all these convictions and it's mm-hmm. like, man, this, this guy, he, even if he's, these are all nine nonviolent crimes, you know, he's got a pattern here. He's not, he's not a good guy. No. I mean, I mean that much substance and, um, alcohol abuse. Yeah. Um, there was a story. My dad was alcohol and substance abuse. He ended up committing suicide, uh, cause he didn't want to go back to jail. Yeah. That was his rationale was we would be better off without him. Hmm. And I was just a little kid. I didn't really know much better. Actually, odd, interesting to talk about that because actually Kathy's brother, mm-hmm. actually, no, Kathy's brother was in my class, Matt. And um, I remember on a Monday morning, he told a story about his father pulling a man from a burning vehicle. Hmm. Next day he came and he said he was so sorry because the man in the burning vehicle, my dad. <laughs> yeah, he claimed he, uh, well, it was overturned at least. I'm not 100% sure if it was burning. But because, uh, you know, you remember these things so strangely. It was in sixth grade, people. Um, but he claims he reached over to get the cigarette lighter mm. to smoke. And then when the cops got there, he refused the breathalyzer. Hmm. And he claims, again, this is little sixth grade year old me thinking of this stuff. I remember him claiming that he tried to get it done later, but after they, he said he refused once, they won't do it. Mm-hmm. So it was automatically um, put down as uh, alcohol related. And I'm like, older me goes, well, it probably was, right. wasn't it, Dad? Because he was a known drinker. Yeah. He was, he was the town drunk. He flattened that stop sign next to the Dairy Queen near our school. <laughs> awesome. And that, that thing was flattened for years. Ah, uh, memories. Memories. Aren't they great? <laughs> so yeah, folks, things do happen in small towns. And yes. they aren't just because people are hicks or terrible. No. It's the same things happen in large towns. And oh, that's yeah. what we're trying to say is just because it's a small town doesn't mean it's safer necessarily. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's kind of why we called this "Nothing Happens in a Small Town" because we knew, <laughs> we knew, because we were thinking about it. And actually, I remember we were trying to come up with a name. Yeah, and I was watching a show, and it, you hear it in so many of these shows. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever happens in Viola, Illinois, right. or insert small town name here. And I'm like, that's it. Yes, <laughs> that's it. Nothing happens in a small town. Yes. So. Thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in, in a, a Small, small town. town. And uh, if you'd like to 
become a Patreon, you can go to www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Our Instagram is nothing happens at a small town. Twitter is nothing happens in a small town at N-H-I-A-S-T. Facebook page, Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a Small Town, at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. And Gmail is Nothing Happens in a Small Town at gmail.com. See a pattern here? Yeah. I don't know. There (laughs) might be one. Just maybe. Thank you for listening, guys. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy.